good morning, Trinity Church family. It's good to see you this morning, and it's really good to hear you just singing out on those wonderful songs of praise that just anchored our hearts in the goodness of God, in the cross. And um, what a privilege for us to gather together like this every week. And um, I'm, I'm excited to jump into God's word, but before I do, I want to tell you about something that's coming up at Trinity that's really an exciting opportunity for us. It's called the Spirit-Led Mentorship Training, and uh, this is a, a training that's coming in October, October 14 and 15. It's going to be led by one of our global workers, Corey McCann. This is her ministry, is a ministry of discipleship, along with a team from Trinity Church, and there are going to be six different lessons, topics that we, we walk through together in a really interactive way around tables. Um, and the goal is how can we become more intentional in our relationships with each other to encourage one another on towards growth in our faith, in our walk with the Lord, in the life change that God the Spirit brings about. So this is exciting. Uh, if you're a home group leader, small group leader, we're really targeting this towards you. You should have received an email invitation, but it's also open to anyone in this church family who wants to be better equipped at one-on-one -on -one discipleship or small group discipleship. And so if that's something on your heart, I encourage you to sign up for this. This is a part of an initiative we began early in this year called the Growing Younger Initiative a group of young people, a group of, shall I say, older people, got together and said, what is the most important thing that we need to be focusing on? And guess what rose to the top? Discipleship and mentoring. And so this is coming out of that uh, identified area that we need to focus in Trinity Church. So this is one of the ways we want to better equip the body to be doing that. So registration is limited. This isn't for a huge group. Um, so I encourage you, if you're interested in it, go online and sign up for it today. So <clears throat> here's a question. I wonder if you have any regrets. When it comes to life, do you have any regrets? If you're like me, maybe some of those regrets are things that you did or things that you said you wish you could take back. Or maybe there are things that you didn't do that you wish you had, or things you wish you had done differently, or things that you wish you had said that went left unsaid. Maybe, like me, you wish you had more courage when courage was needed and you backed off instead of moving forward in faith. Or maybe you gave up too quickly on someone or something you threw in the towel and you wish you had gone further. Whatever our regrets are, I guarantee that when you think of the things in your life and I think of the things in my life that I regret the most, it cuts deepest in our relationships with one another, in our marriages, in my parenting, in our relationships between siblings, in our friendships. Family and friendship is the place where when we have broken relationships and conflict, 
It cuts the deepest. It hurts the most. And we bleed. And today, I want to remind you of something. The church is a family. A family of brothers and sisters by God's design. We are a community of friendships. And if you've lived life for any period of time, I guarantee that you have had hurts and that you have broken relationships that have come within the family and friendship of Christ in the community of the church. And so whether it's Trinity Church, and we've had our share, or whether it's other local churches, nobody gets out without facing challenges and broken relationships. And so the question that we get to look at today, the answer is coming from the scriptures to this question, is what do we do, what can we do to reconcile our broken relationships? Does anybody need to hear this new today? Amen. I believe that God wants to do a healing work. I believe that he already is doing a healing work in relationships within this body, but also it can trickle down into our relationships, in our families, in our friendships. If we would hear what God has to say today, and if we had put these things into practice. And so we're going to turn, and I invite you to turn in your Bible with me to 2 Corinthians 7. This isn't a standalone sermon. This is the path that we've been walking with the Apostle Paul in his letter, his, his, the letter of 2 Corinthians to the Corinthian church. And we're in chapter 7. <clears throat> While you're turning there, I want to give you a little history. If you're joining us for the first time or you've maybe forgotten, what's this backstory? Well, here it is. Paul is an apostle. He's writing this letter with Timothy. Timothy. There are others. There's a group of people. He, on his journey to bring the gospel to the world, goes to Corinth. He stays there 18 months. He builds these lasting, deep, intimate friendships. The church is born. People have given their lives to the Lord. There's this amazing movement of God in the church, after 18 months, the Apostle Paul continues to take the gospel elsewhere, but he writes a letter back to the Corinthians to correct some problems that they're having. That's 1 Corinthians. And then he goes back to Corinth at some point for a visit, maybe to address some of these issues that he addressed in his letter. But this visit apparently did not go well. He says in 2 Corinthians, it was a painful visit, a painful visit. And so he writes another letter, and he sends it with Timothy. He is wise, and he knows he cannot solve this problem because it's a problem between him and the Corinthian church. And so he sends an advocate. He sends Titus with this letter. And we find ourselves today in this place where Titus comes back to Paul with the news of how the Corinthians received his letter. That's 2 Corinthians. So this letter that we're going to hear about today is lost. We don't get to see the content of that letter. It's not in the scriptures for us. But we're going to be talking about it today. And so before we jump in, 
I want to point out something very, very important about this topic of reconciling broken relationships. And this is really important for all of us to know, is it takes two willing parties to reconcile a relationship. And there is a verse, Romans 12, 18, that became a life verse for me when I was a young adult. And I started to see, hey, this is going to be hard in life. I'm going to have conflicts in my relationships. I found Romans 12, 18, or it found me, and I made it a life verse. And there's one other reason why I did. Because 12, 18 was my household address. And I thought, this must be for me, God. So here's what it says. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. And I want to encourage us today, let's leave the if it is possible in God's hands and let's focus on the as far as it depends on you part. Shall we ask for God to help us? Heavenly Father, I know that this issue is very, very real to all of us. And for some of us, it's incredibly painful. There are hurts that run deep. For some of us, there are fears that we're headed the wrong direction, and there's no, no knowledge of how in the world do I turn this around. And God, I believe that you are going to give us, you have given us your word to give us a, a lamp for our feet, a path to follow, to walk in. And so I pray, God, today that we would hear what you have to say to each of us individually, that we would hear what you have to say to us as your church, and that we would put these things into practice. And God, that you would do a wonderful work among us as you are already doing, but this would be a part of continuing that work, that you may be glorified. Open our eyes, open our hearts today, in Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing that we need to do, according to the scriptures, to reconcile our broken relationships is we need to have, make sure we have an open heart posture. In your notes today, hopefully you have the notes, an open heart is the most important thing that we need to have in order to reconcile broken relationships. Paul voices this incredible desire, this invitation, this plea to open hearts back up. We're going to read that. But here's what he also does, and this is what I don't want us to miss today. He shows us what it looks like in the way that he's opened his heart to the Corinthian church. And so reconciliation is an invitation to open our hearts up to each other. Let's take a look back to chapter 611 because this is where he began. Strong, strong words. He says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding your, our affection from you, but you are holding, withholding your affection from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Open wide your hearts also. And then back down, move down to 7. Verse 2, he says, make room for us in your hearts. 
We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. I don't say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I've spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. So Paul begins not only asking for an open heart, but modeling an open heart. And in the passage in between those two invitations or requests, he gives a first very important step in opening our hearts, and it's this. And this was the message last week. If you missed it, I encourage you to go look it up because it really is point number one of how we open our hearts to each other. It's very important. It's this. We have to get rid of competing affections. We have to cleanse ourselves from the sins in our hearts that are closing us off to listening to God and to listening to one another. Paul calls those things being yoked to unbelievers or to unbelief. And he says, cleanse yourself from these. And the way that we do that is through confession of sin. God is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, he says. And it's through this act of repentance, of turning away from idols, turning away from unbelief, turning towards God. And so that's step number one from last week. But this week, we have this invitation to open our hearts, and then Paul gives us an example of what it looks like. And this is what I don't want you to miss. This is incredibly, incredibly important, Trinity Church, for those of us who are leaders in this church to listen to what Paul has to say, because it is on us as the leaders of, of, of a church community to demonstrate and model the open heart. And this trickles its way down. If you are a parent, then you are in a leadership role with your children, whether they're youth or whether they're adult children. It is the responsibility of the leader. In the home, God sets the man as the leader of the home. It is the man, it's the husband's responsibility to lead the way in an open heart. And I don't want you to miss this. Okay, leaders, are you ready? Number one, just looking back, we could do a whole study on Paul's open heart throughout all of the scriptures, but I just want to look at where we've been in the letter we're looking at today. Number one, Paul has an open heart in the way he is conducting himself. So look at our conduct. Going back to Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, right at the get-go, he says this, our conscience testifies we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. Are we conducting ourselves with integrity and godly sincerity? Paul confirms his integrity and sincerity in verse 2, saying, we have, no, we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one, nor exploited no one. Second, the way that we communicate 
is the way we express an open heart towards the people that we love and lead. Listen to Paul. So the second is our speech. And Paul's writing a letter. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Are we communicating the depth of our love to those we lead? Look at Paul's phrase in verse 3. He's not condemning them, he says, but rather, I'm affirming my love for you. He says, you've such a place in our hearts that we will die with you and live with you. What's that a reference of, you guys? Eternal life. We're in this forever together. And he's saying this to people who've hurt him. One commentator says, this is the highest expression of love and friendship in that culture, the Greek culture of that time. And guess what? Our Lord gave that same offer to his disciples, and he gives it to us. When he said, no greater love has anyone than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. This is the friendship that we are to offer one another, and Paul is modeling that towards these people who are oppositional to him. Look at Paul's affirmation in verse 4. He says, I take great pride in you. And later in the passage, we're going to see he's boasting about the Corinthians Before there's reconciliation, he's praising them. He's talking about who knows what he's boasting about, their character, their faith. But the last thing that an open heart does is an open heart forgives. It's quick to forgive. And so in uh, chapter 2, verse 10, Paul's talking about forgiveness. And he says, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ, for your sake. So we forgive the other person for the other person's sake, but even more so, the word for your sake is plural. Paul says, I forgave maybe these people who've been oppositional. We don't know the exact situation. I forgave for your sake, Corinthians. It's for this body, but it's more than that. He says, it's in the sight of of Christ. Because of my devotion for Jesus, I'm going to obey his command to forgive one another. Those are just a few examples from our letter, 2 Corinthians, of how Paul opens his heart as a leader up towards the people he's leading and having in this situation to correct I want to talk briefly before we move on to the next point about the issue of trust. I've heard a lot of people say, and it's true, when you've had a conflict that hasn't resolved itself well, it's easy to have broken trust. 
And the, and, and, and the problem with broken trust is we distance ourselves off to protect ourselves, don't we? And that could be a, a, a correct decision briefly. But I asked myself, what does an open heart look like when I've lost trust? And the answer is in the next step. I believe that an open heart is by having godly sorrow about the situation. And I believe it's expressed in the willingness to rebuild trust. The willingness to say, I want that affectionate relationship back as well. And so our next point of this passage where Paul's going to take us is if an open heart symbolizes this reconciliation, this return to affection, how does that process begin? And the answer is God's word teaches that reconciliation begins with godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. We're going to see that godly sorrow sets us on a path towards salvaging our relationships. We've looked at the end game. Paul's target, right, is open hearts, reconciled, restored relationship, restored affection. But the answer is, where do we start? And the Bible says, start with godly sorrow over the situation. Let's turn to the scriptures. This is a big section, but we're going to read through it, starting with chapter 4, halfway. He says, I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Because when I came into Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the, the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so you're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance, and that leads to salvation, and that leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on the account of the one who did the wrong, nor on the account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. Whew. 
what in the world happened to make Paul so happy? Here's this this invitation, open your hearts to us. He's he's painfully inviting them to open their hearts, but now he's, he's overflowing with joy. What happened? The door to reconciliation had been blown wide open between himself and the Corinthians because they've had a change of heart. They had a change of heart towards themselves in their role in this conflict, and they had a change of heart towards Paul. This section of Paul's letter is a celebration that the Corinthians have repented. Repentance is the issue. And how in the world did this happen is what we need to ask ourselves. If that's what blows open the door to reconciliation, how does repentance happen? And that's what we're going to look at for the rest of the message today because this is what Paul teaches us. Paul refers back to his letter, right, that caused him pain. The word translated pain is the key word most repeated in this entire passage. Rivaling it is the word for joy. Isn't that crazy? Pain, joy. Pain, joy. Like this is the topic we're looking at today. He uses the verb in the noun form of the word eight times in five verses. The Greek word is lupe. If you have a different translation, you're going to see the word grief. And I like the word grief because there's something about grief that gets to the gut emotion of sorrow. If you've lost a loved one, we talk about grieving their loss. That is that process where we are deeply emotional, and that can take a long time. That same emotion, grief, is what Paul is saying we should have about our sin, and especially our sin towards others. We should be grieved, godly sorrow. But here's one thing. Paul's going to contrast two types of sorrow. They both feel the same. Godly sorrow, he's, and literally in the Greek, it's sorrow that's according to God. Or is it worldly sorrow, the sorrow of the world? Because godly sorrow brings something so beautiful. It begins the path towards repentance and salvation, healing, restoration. Whereas worldly sorrow brings death, dead end, nothing. Nothing good comes from worldly sorrow. So the question is, how in the world do we know what kind of sorrow we're feeling when we're feeling sorry? And Paul doesn't leave us without a list. Before we move on, I want to encourage you to think of a broken relationship or it could, be, it could be with an individual. You, maybe you're still, you see you have hope, or maybe you don't have hope. But it could be a relationship with a group. 
You see, this situation wasn't just Paul and one person in the church. This was Paul and Timothy and leaders. You'll see he says we a lot. And it's with the Corinthian church. So I want you to think of a situation, and I encourage you to let the scriptures help us evaluate in this situation that I'm thinking about today. Do I have godly sorrow? Or do I have worldly sorrow? And then let's look at what godly sorrow looks like. Here it is in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians. He says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation that leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And so you see this progression leaving this up on the screen. Godly sorrow brings about a change of heart, a change of direction, a turning toward, and it leads to salvation, a rescue. Something that's dying is now being brought to life. Something that was in bondage is now freed, that salvation, and it leaves no regret. It is a decision that you are going to be happy you made for the rest of your life. No regret. And this same progression that Paul's saying about repentance is what brings us salvation in Christ. Salvation has this depth of meaning in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It can mean I just need to be saved out of this situation, right? But it also, we know, means the very act of God forgiving our sins, taking us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In, in, in uh, chapter 5, he says the we are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. Behold, the old is gone and the new has come. That's salvation. And how does that happen? It's the same progression of godly sorrow, repentance, forgiveness is wrapped up in what means to be saved, made right with God, and no regrets. But here, I think Paul is likening the reconciliation he was just talking about with God to with one another. And when he talks about salvation, he is talking about the salvaging of a relationship. And there's no regrets in that. So, how many of us are stuck in this dead end of regrets when it comes to a broken relationship? Could it be? that we have worldly sorrow. And that's why we're hitting this dead end instead of godly sorrow, which blows open the door to reconciliation. So how do we tell the difference? Well, Paul is like a chef. He's cooking up these ingredients that are a recipe for repentance. And here are the ingredients, and they come from godly sorrow. And so look at them. In verse 11, he says, See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, 
What eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation. What alarm. What longing. What concern. What readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. The first ingredient that is produced is the main one that shapes all the others. And it's translated for us, earnestness. This is the most important word in understanding if we have godly sorrow or worldly sorrow. Is, is it producing earnestness in us? And so in order to understand this word, I want to look at the full definition within this context of this passage. The word in Greek is spude, and it means earnest commitment in the discharge of an obligation or the experience of a relationship. Commitment. But it goes on. Here are some synonyms. Eagerness, earnestness, diligence, willingness, zeal. But also it's concern for personal moral excellence. Or, and this I highlighted, optimum devotion to the interests of others. Goodwill toward devotion for someone. Earnestness means I'm devoted to you. I'm committed to you. And that's what godly sorrow produces. And here's the problem, and you guys, this is my problem. Every time I have an issue where there's conflict, and the most places I might have that are in my family as a parent, because that is an area where I'm in charge, right? My kids are here today. (laughs) Anytime there's a problem, what am I devoted to becomes the question. Am I devoted to that, to my child? Or am I devoted to being right? Am I devoted to, think of a church situation now. Am I devoted to seeing that other person restored, happy, Or am I devoted to my own solution to this problem? I know what needs to be done. And you guys, when we walk through challenges, I realize my heart has the devotion to the wrong thing is usually default mode. And I have to deal with that first before the Lord is, am I devoted to myself or am I devoted to others? And here it is, godly sorrow is always others-focused. It's not self-focused. And my devotion to my own, seeing things my own way, and I may be right, but if I start thinking I'm right, there's a problem. And um, all I see in my own life often is selfishness and pride. Those are killers in relationships. Killers evidence of worldly sorrow that's focused on me and not on the other person. Paul tells us in verse 12 that earnestness is his goal for writing that letter that caused them pain. 
earnestness is his goal. And here it is in verse 12. So even though I wrote you, he said, it's neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on the account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves, here it is, how devoted to us you are. Translated elsewhere, your earnestness for us. Isn't that beautiful? Paul wants that reconciled relationship. So, here's a chart from chapter 11. I want to consider these seven qualities, starting with earnestness, these ingredients that come from godly sorrow through the lens of earnestness, because that's where it all starts. And I, wanna, and I tried, and these are just my own words, I'm just trying to picture what does it look like to feel these things if I'm focused on the other person and not focused on myself, okay? Look at the chart. It's also in your notes. So earnestness is this sense of I'm devoted to you. Eagerness to clear yourselves is I want a clean slate with you. I want forgiveness. I don't want anything between us. Indignation is I hate this state we're in. It could be I hate this misery and I can't take it anymore. We've got to do something. Alarm is literally the word for fear. I'm afraid of losing you. I'm afraid of where this is headed if we don't get help. And then these beautiful words, longing. I long to see resolution between us. I long for that affection we once had. Concern, I care deeply for you. Readiness to see justice done. I'm willing to do whatever it takes to see the wrongs made right. That's what godly sorrow produces. Paul closes this little section with this amazing statement. He says, on every point, at every point, you've proven yourselves to be innocent in this matter. And what we see here is Paul using the, his central concept of forgiveness in the gospel to basically say, it's as if you never did the wrong. You are not guilty anymore in my book. This is the concept of justification in Paul's theology that he teaches in all of his epistles, where on the basis of our faith in Christ, God declares us not guilty of our sin. And so Paul is putting into practice here what we're going to see. He teaches the Colossian church saying, forgive one another just as Christ forgave you, you must also forgive one another. So how did Christ forgive you? Not guilty. Forgotten. This is in the past now. Christ forgave you and me. He didn't remove our sin. Just, he didn't just remove our sins. It says that he took our sins on himself on the cross. And in place, he gives us his righteousness. Not guilty. Freed. Not condemned. And Paul forgives the Corinthian church like that. Has this happened in your life? How can we forgive if we haven't experienced the grace and forgiveness of God? 
And if you're in, in this life and you would say, I, I don't know, I'm, I don't, I'm not a believer. I'm glad that you're here today because these, these guidelines of open heart and of godly sorrow are beautiful things. But I want you to know that what the, t- the scriptures teach is that apart from Christ, you are not reconciled to God. You do not have a reconciled relationship, and therefore you do not have peace with God. But salvation with no regrets is what Paul is teaching, and that's what God offers you in Christ Jesus. So once we're reconciled to God, and that comes from this process of godly sorrow over our sin, turning away from our sin towards God, that's repentance, Receiving his forgiveness, that's salvation. No regrets. If that hasn't happened in your life, I encourage you to begin that process today with God. Because once we're reconciled to God, he begins to salvage our lives. Redeeming and reconciling our relationships with others, among other things. Right after the section on being reconciled to God, he says, not only are you reconciled, but now I've made you ambassadors of reconciliation, right? You carry this message to the world, Christians. On behalf of Christ, we say be reconciled to God, and that's why that's the message today that you're hearing from me. The very next words in chapter 6 are, don't receive the grace of God in vain. And he spends a whole chapter, two chapters, talking about reconciliation with one another. Do you think maybe that's what he means? How can we carry the message of reconciliation into the world if we're not living in reconciliation with one another in the church? But God's given us the path. And here's the beautiful thing. We're on that path We're on that path. I can sense the joy in this place as we gather and as we worship the Lord. And that's where Paul ends in chapter 7, is celebrating what's happened with anticipation for what's yet to come. So come, here's the last way that we can, what we can do to reconcile our broken relationships is to joyfully anticipate our reunion. And I use the word reunion because it's a family word. When we get back together and we celebrate what it means to be a family of God in Christ, gathered in his name about the family business of being ambassadors of Christ to the world. So here's what's happened in this situation. Pick it up at uh, verse 13 and we'll close for today. In addition to our own encouragement, it's comfort is the other word, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit had been refreshed by you. All, all of you. I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proven to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you all were obedient 
receiving him with fear and trembling. And I'm glad that I can have complete confidence in you. In closing, Paul has this confidence that he had asked them to open their hearts to him. He, it was as good as done. Why? Because they had repented. They had godly sorrow. The door was wide open to reconciliation. And they had demonstrated an open heart towards Titus. And so in Paul's mind, he starts to see the next step. And what is it? Face-to-face, hug, arm-to-arm, holy kiss, right, in that culture. It's the reunion. It's when Paul would go to back, not for a painful visit, but for a wonderful, reconciling, affectionate visit. Everything would be made right. And Paul has that confidence, and he says that to them. And so... What did that look like with Titus? Well, first of all, they received him, right? Hospitality. Titus was brought in and welcomed into their community. Second is they received him with fear and trembling. Those are words Paul uses, right, a couple times. that, That phrase, fear and trembling, what is it? It's taking their situation with gravity. This is serious business, and we're gonna take this seriously. And what resulted? They listened to the truth that Paul was trying to communicate in his letter. They listened to Paul's heart. They obeyed, right? Their obedience is what made Paul rejoice. And so the affection is just starting to flow. And I believe that Paul in this closing paragraph, and this is it, he's going to move on now. And he's going to ask them to open their hearts to something a big, he's going to give a big ask in the next two chapters. That's a sermon for next week. But Paul communicates his confidence that they are going to open their hearts. And I believe we can have that same confidence here, Trinity Church, and we can have that in our relationships, in our families, and in our friendships. So imagine with me what it would look like if we put into practice these two main concepts, let's say three, because cleansing ourselves from sin in our hearts is number one. Number two is having godly sorrow. And number three is opening our hearts, having an open heart posture towards one another. What would happen if we actually followed this and we offered each other those things in this church? Because I don't want to miss that the context of this letter is within a church family. And we're going to apply this deeper into our own relationships, into our marriages, into, you guys, I've had so many conversations this week that have broken my heart. And one of the big ones is parents with their adult children. And a lot of time it's because the parent has great, desire to see their children who are now adults walking with the Lord and so they 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 challenge them on something and they and then the relationship severed so i believe that god wants to do a work not just among trinity but to trickle down into our relationships into our friendships can you imagine the comfort the encouragement and the joy 
that comes from reconciliation. Maybe you can. I think it's time for us at Trinity Church to imagine this together. I see it happening, and it's wonderful. I rejoice when I think of a church family where there's no withholding of affection. What if that's what we experience this afternoon at our town hall? Is this time of affectionate, joy-filled embrace as we continue to work through things? And here's the thing, Trinity, we've still got work to do. But let's trust ourselves, let's trust the Lord with this work of cleansing our hearts from idols, from sin, of having godly sorrow, and of opening our hearts, having this posture of open hearts towards one another. Let's move forward with no regrets. Shall we pray and ask the Lord to help us? Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for your word that doesn't leave us without hope, that gives us a way forward in, in areas in our lives that are probably the most precious and important to us, and that is in our relationships with one another. And first and foremost, God, we thank you that you have made a way through Jesus Christ to be reconciled with you, to have peace with you. Thank you that it's not dependent on us, but it is your work, and our job is simply to have godly sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation. God, I pray that you would do the same work by salvaging relationships represented in this body here today. God, I pray that you would bring healing, that you would help us to focus on as far as it concerns us, that you would be greatly praised by the work that you're going to do, and that we have seasons of great joy and encouragement ahead for us. And all these things we pray in the powerful name of Jesus for your glory alone. Amen.